0: Hi, and welcome back to the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. Jaden and I will be discussing various forms of hepatitis.
1: Yeah, I think we thought it was kind of a good idea to get all this information into one place. We've talked about different forms of hepatitis in previous episodes, but I think that collecting that information into one podcast is a good idea. And we also wanted to discuss the recent outbreak of sort of an unknown type of hepatitis. So first off, how many types actually are there and are they kind of generally distinguishable from one another?
0: There are a bunch of different types of hepatitis that we're going to be talking about. We're really going to be talking about the viral hepatitis that we're aware of. I think a lot of people have some level of familiarity with some of these like hepatitis A, B, C, D, E, and there's even um, hepatitis G. So we're going to talk about all these different types of viruses. We don't know much about G, but anyway, we'll spend a little bit more time on the others. And there are di- certainly differences between how they're transmitted, but some of them are somewhat similar in their symptoms to a degree.
1: Cool. All right. So first off, I guess the most logical one to start with is hepatitis A. What does that look like? And how do you catch it?
0: I think, yeah, a lot of people are already familiar to a degree with hepatitis A or heard of it. And hepatitis A, it is transmitted by uh, the fecal-oral route through poor uh, hand hygiene and then eating or drinking contaminated food or water. So then really, I think the best way to describe it, and this is how I've described it in travel consults, is, you know, you get some guy who's preparing your food, and maybe he goes to the bathroom, he doesn't wash his hands properly after he went to the bathroom, and then he comes back and he prepares your food. And then at that point, when the fecal residue that could be on his hands, he touches your food, you eat the food, you've been potentially exposed to hepatitis A, and you can get it from that contaminated food or water. And, you know, after you get to that point, you know, the virus is replicated in the liver and causes inflammation and affects the function of the liver. A lot of people will have a very mild or asymptomatic illness. One thing we do find in a lot of developing countries, you get hepatitis a at a very young age it there's hardly any symptoms at all you won't even know you had it but as you get older certainly the possibility of a symptomatic occurrence is 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 higher and the other thing about it that i think is worth mentioning is there's a really long incubation period so this is something where if you're wondering like how could a restaurant worker pass this on well the restaurant worker, realistically speaking, probably could be passing it on and feels totally fine. Because when you have that, that long incubation period, they can be passing it on, yet you're still infectious. But then what happens after the long incubation period is you can get the real rapid onset of jaundice, fever, loss of appetite, vomiting, stomach pain, dark pee, liver pain. And in older kids and adults, it usually lasts less than two months, but there is a percentage of people, Jaden, I know you did the research on this, but about 10 to 15% have relapsing prolonged symptoms in the amount of 6 to 12 uh, months. So that certainly is a long time. Now, from my reading of it with in in the past with hepatitis A, if you are symptomatic, you're probably looking at a good month of really being down. Fatality is rare. I believe the um, case fatality rate is is under 1%, but... Once you start going over 50 uh, years of age, it increases to maybe 1.8%. And immunocompromised, they're more at risk as well.
1: For sure. How about hepatitis E? That one appears to have a quite similar presentation, right?
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think even though we're jumping around in the alphabet, it's probably best (laughs) to talk about E next because E and A are very similar in a lot of ways it's transmitted in exactly the same way fecal oral route where exactly food handling but it is less common we don't see this as much as hepatitis A and you know we what we're finding is it can be seen in places in Africa Asia the Caribbean and Mexico i think the numbers you pulled up jaden is 20 million cases a year With 56,000 related deaths, which sounds really high, more than I would have expected. Most people, here's the thing. Most people, hepatitis E is not anywhere near as concerning, except, of course, when we run into a situation with uh, people that are pregnant. And this is really deadly for people that are pregnant. Fetal losses is almost for sure. And uh, maternal death rate is extremely high.
1: Right. Yes, I think that those were sort of predicted numbers that necessarily, um, hepatitis E isn't always diagnosed in every case, but that, that was sort of the estimation of the numbers. But yes, that does seem, it it does seem like a big number, but I think the numbers are significantly higher for hepatitis A
0: comparatively. Okay. And then, yeah, it is still something that is on our, on our radar screen for sure. And Yeah. I think something something that well not a lot of people know about. I've brought up hepatitis E in the past, and it's it's something most people have never even heard of,
1: yeah, I think it's it's one that i it wasn't super familiar with prior to now. But the next probably most commonly known one or most commonly discussed in terms of travel health is probably hepatitis B. How is hepatitis B different than hepatitis A or E?
0: So when you're thinking about hepatitis B, the things that are in common with A, for example, would be it is a virus. It attacks the liver, causes inflammation of the liver. But how you get it, that's where it's really different. And you get it through contact with infected blood, body fluids, through broken skin or, or via injectable. Or So you can see transmission between a mother and child at birth, IV drug use, sexual contact, shared razors, unsterilized needles, tattoo guns these kinds of things, even in potentially in a healthcare setting and in unscreened blood transfusions, the virus can stay infectious on a surface for several days, I believe up to seven days. And the incubation period is also similarly to hepatitis A is quite long, right around the 90 day mark. And some people might stay asymptomatic, but if you are going to have symptoms, it's not something which happens quickly. It's a bit of a long burn from an incubation standpoint. You can have certainly acute illness, but hepatitis B can also become a chronic illness, which is concerning. If you have the acute illness, your recovery rate is probably within three months, death rate of around 1.5% and and higher for those over 50. The chronic illness can, it can be a real serious chronic disease, which can really uh, result in liver failure, liver dysfunction in general, liver cancer. So it's, um, can definitely do a do a number on you uh, over the long term,
1: right? So the next one that we would probably mention is hepatitis D, right? As it can only kind of occur in the presence of
0: hepatitis B, right? Exactly. So what happens here is is that these are really strongly linked viruses, and I believe the number that you had actually pulled out, Jaden, was about five percent of people who have chronic hepatitis B are probably at risk here and you can be infected with it at the same time or after getting hepatitis B. So, you know, when you start looking at adverse outcomes, it's certainly there, and and we can definitely see an acceleration of cirrhosis by as much as as a decade. And so it is a, a real concern, and there are there are some treatment options available, but yeah, they're not necessarily ideal from a from an efficacy standpoint.
1: Okay. The next one that people might be familiar with is probably hepatitis C. And this one, I think actually we've recently found out that it's quite
0: treatable. Yes, that's correct. So, a lot of times people they know hepatitis A, B, and C. And I think interestingly enough for whatever reasons, hepatitis C Seems like people are a bit more aware of how this one's transmitted. And it is transmitted very much in the same kind of way that hepatitis B is. Most of the cases that we typically see are through intravenous drug use. So, you know, blood, body fluids, shared dirty needles. We don't really know for sure about sexual contact, but we, we're pretty confident that it, there's indirect evidence that supports that. But when you start looking at it, you know, again, another inflammatory disease of the liver. And yeah, so you can have another relatively long incubation period, two to 26 weeks after exposure, but can be detected as quickly as two weeks after exposure. About 80% of infections have no real symptoms. And actually in the acute phase, usually you have milder symptoms than you would in comparison to A and B. But here's the... The problem really. uh, 75% will become chronic carriers and 25% will develop cirrhosis eventually. It may take a couple decades. So 29% of those who develop cirrhosis will progress to liver failure and and liver cancer. So 14% with liver cancer. So definitely some significant long-term sequelae here. Right.
1: Okay. The last one that we mentioned is the newest one, which is hepatitis G. What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, we don't know that much yet at this point. But what we do know is that it is blood, body fluid, sexual contact, like very similar in the vein of the hepatitis B and C. And, you know, I know that you can have persistent infection that can last potentially for years. There's not a lot of proof, though, that it causes serious liver disease. And we don't really have a treatment. So I don't think we've really fully grasped where we're at with this one yet. But it's been identified and named and lettered. So uh, sure, let's include it in the conversation.
1: For sure. That might be one that becomes a little bit more of a a topic of discussion later on. But for now, that's, I suppose, what we happen to know about it. The next thing I probably wanted to discuss was the sort of vaccination options. Right now, there's only vaccines available for hepatitis A and B, right?
0: That's correct. So we've had both of these vaccines for hepatitis A and hepatitis B, really since the 90s, the early 90s. These are long-standing vaccines that Uh, have been available either in an individual composition with just hepatitis A or just hepatitis B or the combination Twinrix, which has A and B. And so both of these Vaccines are effective. They're inactivated vaccines. The side effect profile on them are pretty good overall. Your typical arm soreness and tenderness. And the hepatitis B vaccine is part of the children's vaccine program in, I think, pretty much every province uh, in Alberta or in in Canada. Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> really, these are effective vaccines that we that we see now. When we're starting to think about it from a travel health perspective, we don't do hepatitis A vaccines here in Canada, typically speaking for uh, as part of the public health vaccine program. So that's one that you won't have. So if you if you are going to be traveling, it is one that you definitely want to consider. Realistically speaking, if you're under the age of 40, you probably got the hepatitis B vaccines in school, I believe the cutoff is 1982. So if you're if you're under forty, you chances are you got that vaccine. But if you are over forty, then Twinrix might be a better option for you. And I guess one other random point about these vaccines would be is that typically speaking in Alberta, we've been giving the hepatitis B vaccine in grade five and grade six, but now we're actually giving it to babies under one, and that it falls in line with a lot of other jurisdictions like BC has been doing that for quite a while. And yeah, it's it's typically a vaccine which is given to infants, and and now. Alberta has kind of fallen in line to that. So we're now starting to see it being given to smaller uh, smaller kids. And in the not-too-distant future, we won't see the need to do the grade five sixes uh, anymore, because once we get to a certain point here, they'll have all been vaccinated as infants.
1: Nice. That sounds like a good idea.
0: Yeah, well, it... Partly it came about because there's a new vaccine available, and it's a combination of five different vaccines in one. And I believe it's tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, and polio and, the, and Hep B all in one shot. So th- that's given in the Alberta program now in those early two months, four months and a year, I believe it is, might not have that exactly right, but something to that effect. And then you're covered off on your bees and you don't even have to get any extra pokes.
1: That is, I'm impressed that we managed to get five in there. That's pretty cool.
0: It, it It is pretty cool. It's a relatively new product. It's been around in Canada for a few years, but yeah, Alberta started doing that. If you're, I believe if you have a child born in 2019 or later, they will have the hepatitis B as part of their baby vaccines. But if, if you Say, for example, your child was born in 2017, 2016. No, they're going to be in the last group that are going to get it done when they're in school. Unless, of course, you decide to get it done early if you're doing like a junior version of Twinrix, something like that you know, prior to travel or that sort of thing.
1: Very cool. Well, back to hepatitis here. I wanted to discuss the treatment options. I mentioned earlier that there's now a cure slash sort of effective treatment for hepatitis C, correct?
0: That is true. There are a few different antiviral regimens that are available. And the treatment process is is long and complicated. We're talking about like an 8 to 12 week treatment period of time. But the cure rate is in the order of 95%. So it is significant. I know that this has been a longstanding goal is to come up with a a good hepatitis C treatment. And it seems like we've now come across an an effective uh, product. Although, interestingly enough, we've never been able to crack the hepatitis C as a vaccine. And I get that question asked all the time at work and and at my clinic is, why haven't we figured out hepatitis C vaccine? And I'm not completely sure about the answer on that. But now I tell people, well, hopefully, you're still not going to get it. But there are treatments available now, at least.
1: Well, that's good. And I'm pretty, I'm always pretty impressed when I see the number 95% in terms of, of cure rate. So that's pretty
0: cool. Yeah, no, it's a pretty remarkable thing that they've been been—they've been working on. And, and uh, um, I don't have a lot of direct contact with people that are involved in the clinical aspects of hepatitis C. But I do have a couple colleagues slash friends that have had some involvement in this. And yeah, it's pretty remarkable stuff uh, from the information that they've given me. Very cool. All right.
1: Well, turning towards current events a little bit, I think that there's been a little bit of chatter, a little bit of news headlines about an unknown hepatitis virus floating around, especially to do with kids. What can you tell us about that?
0: So here's the time when I pull back the curtain, right, Jaden, and talk about what's been going on. We we originally had planned to do this podcast several weeks ago when everything (laughs) was sort of happening and I said, oh, no, I think we should just wait a few weeks to see if they can find out some more information before we uh, do the podcast. But I think we kind of decided that maybe it's time to just go with it because there hasn't been as much about this the last little bit. But we have seen an unexplained outbreak of some severe cases. And here's the freaky part of it is that they've been in otherwise healthy children. I know that when you had done the research, you had come up with well over 300 probable cases. Of acute hepatitis throughout the world, and and some of them have led to liver transplants, and there were reports of death. So this is significant, and don't really understand why there are some people have posited that it could be related to COVID. We're not really sure. There does seem to be some possible correlations to adenoviruses, but again, we're not really sure. I guess the really the short answer is we're still trying to figure this out. And yeah, I think we'll have to sort of see what ends up happening. I'm, I'm presuming that in the not too distant future, we'll have a bit more information about the details, but uh, something's going on, something weird. And And I guess the other thing about it too, which of course is concerning is, healthy kids, right? These are not people with existing comorbidities or typically speaking, some of the habits that you would associate with, you know, in regards to blood and body fluid transmission, you know, that's not something that's really probably on the radar screen for for the kids that are getting this. So yeah, we don't really fully understand, but it's uh, something to watch for.
1: Certainly. And it didn't appear that they were related to travel either, were they?
0: No, there doesn't seem to be any correlation there because I think there was some thought about is there some kind of origin of this somehow from some place and everybody's been connected through travel and they haven't seemed to connect those dots in any way. So it is a bit of a mystery. And I guess this is just one of those things. It's like it takes time to figure some of this stuff out. I, I'm somewhat confident that we'll eventually figure out something, but we're not quite there yet.
1: Well, I am sure that there'll be some news in the coming weeks about that, but is there anything else you wanted to mention or chat about in terms of the hepatitis
0: conversation? Not really. I think we've covered most of the the stuff to talk about. I think when you start thinking about these hepatitis, the A, B, and C are are obviously the ones of most note, and D is kind of interesting in in the sense that it's so closely tied to B, and then E a little bit more obscure. But like, like I had mentioned previously, it's a very devastating illness if you're pregnant. And yeah, I was like talking about vaccines. So certainly the A and B of a vaccine. Here's a a thing and we didn't prep on this, uh, Jaden. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you something. (laughs) Apparently, there is a hepatitis E vaccine in China. And I don't really know much about it, except that it exists. And it's only exists in China. I don't know much about effectiveness or mechanism of action, but my understanding is there is a hepatitis E vaccine in China. I've never really researched it beyond that, but yeah, it's apparently a thing.
1: Is it one that they would give to kids or is it just, or do you not
0: know I actually do about it beyond that? I don't really know. I don't know much about it. I know it exists and, and I don't even, I don't, beyond the fact it's made by a, Chinese pharmaceutical country, uh, company and it's only available in China. That's pretty much all I know. I guess that shouldn't. The one thing I did read about it was that it didn't necessarily seem to be like this enormous, like life changing breakthrough that, you know, every other country in the world is clamoring to to get this vaccine. And, you know, I don't know if that's because of lack of knowledge or whatever, but it certainly hasn't been a big like global hit. Like to me, if, if there was a vaccine that came out that was really pretty awesome, and even if it was behind all the barriers that we associate with China right now, you know, political barriers and economic barriers, you would still think that people would be beaten down the doors if it was like really awesome. But that's just me hypothesizing, really.
1: Hmm. Proved in 2012 for use in China.
0: Oh you've already, you're already uh, checking it out. Yeah. So, don't know much about it, but I don't think we're likely to be seeing it Canadian fridges anytime soon though.
1: Interesting. Well, it's always interesting to to look at sort of like a disease grouping like this and sort of, I don't know, I thought it was interesting to research, so I hope everyone else thinks so too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I would agree. I think it's it's interesting stuff for sure.
1: Totally. Okay. Anything else you want to mention?
0: I think that pretty much covers it. Like we could probably go on and on talk about some of this stuff, but I, I think that uh, we've kind of hit the key points that I want to hit, and uh, I think gives us a little bit of an overview and uh, kind of a to be continued as well. I guess.
1: Yeah, we might have an update soon. Perhaps. All right. Well, thank you for tuning into this week's edition of the Polaris Travel Health podcast. A reminder that the information and advice we provide in this podcast are not a substitute for live medical advice tailored to your itinerary and your medical history. If you have questions or you'd like to book an appointment, please head over to our website, www.polaristravelclinic.ca. Check us out on Twitter at Polaris Travel RX and our Facebook page as well. We hope you'll tune in again with us next week. Thanks, Jaden. Thank you.